Well, it's, it's hard to get anybody to admit it, but almost all of us know what it feels like to be unloved and rejected. For some of us, that's just a matter of insecurity, right? I'm not really sure how my spouse really feels about me. I'm not really sure if all these people around me really like me or not. I'm not really sure what my parents think of me, my coworkers, and my boss think of me. For some of us, it's an uncertainty and an insecurity. And for most of us, probably, we have some memories of being rejected or unloved. That time that you were picked last on the PE field, unless it was just me, but I don't think it was just me. That time that you liked that person, but they asked the other guy or the other girl out instead. Uh, Some of us, it's memories like this, that moment when we weren't the loved one, we weren't the chosen one. And almost all of us can relate to that, because almost all of us have felt something like that before. But there's another level of this that some of us can't relate to. A lot of us, in fact, can't relate to. For some of us, living as unloved or as the rejected, unchosen one is a sad way of life for some of us. I'm thinking of the the wife who knows that the reason her husband keeps cheating on her is because he's bored with her. Or the son whose father hasn't reached out to him in 20 years, and he knows it's because his dad is disappointed with him and in his heart rejects him. We can't all relate to that, but that is the reality that some of us live in, knowing that someone who should love us does not love us. And the reason that I point that out is that this morning's story is about someone just like that, someone for whom rejection is not a fear and an insecurity, and it's not a memory in the distant past, but was something that she faced every day. We have reached the point in the book of Genesis where we dive into the story of a woman named Leah. And I'll tell you her backstory first, what we've learned about her so far, and then we'll dive into just what her experience is and how the Lord responds to her. So, Leah is an older sister of two sisters. She has a father named Laban and a little sister named Rebecca. And we learned last week, or actually two weeks ago in the last story, that between the two sisters, uh, Rachel, I said Rebecca, but it's actually Rachel that is her sister. Some of y'all caught that. Rachel is, is the pretty one, and Leah is, is not the pretty one. And so when a young man comes around, a young man named Jacob, his attention is fixated on the little sister, on Rachel. And he has no interest in the older sister, Leah. So for seven years, he chases Rachel and tries to win her as his wife until finally the day comes when he is set to marry her and there is no one for older sister Leah to marry because no one is interested in her. So their father arranges this scheme because he doesn't want Leah to go unmarried without a husband forever. He arranges this scheme where he tricks Jacob into marrying her instead of marrying Rachel. So now here she is. She has a husband. The husband isn't thrilled with her, and it seems like maybe she'll get by okay for a while. But pretty immediately, it becomes evident that that is not going to be the case. Pretty immediately, actually a week later, Jacob marries Rachel also. And so now 
she must share her husband with her prettier little sister, knowing that her husband likes her little sister, even loves her little sister, and does not have these feelings for her. So this life of being rejected by her husband is a day-to-day thing for her now. This would play out in all the concrete details of their lives. All the servants in the house would figure out very quickly that Rachel is the favored wife and Leah is not the favored wife. And so they would do all they can to make sure Rachel has everything they need because she's more powerful, she's more influential, and they would not care so much what Leah thought of them and would not work so hard to please her. We even have decent reason to believe because of the way the story will go on after today's story. It looks like in their culture, when there were multiple wives in a scenario like this, the favored wife got to choose who the husband went to bed with each night. And that probably is the case. And if it was the case, that would mean that Leah could only see her husband when her prettier younger sister said that she could. This would be the day-to-day life that she would walk through now for the rest of her life. Now, if your heart breaks for her, or for some of us, if you can relate to her, Let's look at her story and see how the Lord responds to her. We're going to read Genesis 31, I'm sorry, 29 now. We will start at verse 31, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son. And said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The words of the Lord. Through that story, our Lord shows to us his love for the unloved. Some stories are very nuanced and the meaning is buried deep within them. It takes a lot of time and a lot of wisdom to sort out what they might mean. Other stories, the meaning is right on the surface. You can read it and you can tell what's going on. And this is one of those stories that's rather easy to interpret. We see right there in verse 31 what the Lord does and we see why he does it. He blesses her with great favor, one of the greatest blessings in the eyes of ancient Near Eastern people that a woman can have. He blesses her abundantly with it. And the reason he does is very plain in verse 31 because he saw that she was rejected and despised in the eyes of her husband. So what it says particularly is that the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and that was why he blessed her. When it says the word hated, it means it one very particular way. Sometimes we use it a little differently. Sometimes we might use the word hate 
uh, to mean, you know, an, an anger that is in your heart that is so great that you just want to squish somebody, right? You just sometimes want to kill somebody. Jesus says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've killed him. He's talking of that kind of hatred. That's not the kind of hatred that Jacob had for Leah here. We have no evidence that he ever harmed her or had any kind of malice toward her. This is a different use of the word. Sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, a little bit in the New, Uh, The words love and hate might even be put next to each other as opposites. And to love someone is to have very warm, dear feelings for them, uh, to receive them in and to take them very close and have a close, intimate relationship with them. In that use, then, to hate somebody is the opposite, to have a distaste for them, uh, to reject them, and as a result, to have some personal distance between the two of you. And that's what's going on here. Jacob looks to Leah and he looks to Rachel, his wife that he loves, and says, oh, she's so beautiful. What a gift. So the things that some of your husbands say for you about your wife, so thankful for her, looks to Leah and says, right, doesn't, doesn't like her as much. And so he rejects her. And this puts a certain amount of distance between the two of them. You can almost sense the coldness in their relationship. So that's where she is. And the Lord, it says, looks and sees. The Lord saw is the words it used. He sees that Leah's hated. That's interesting, isn't it? Doesn't the Lord see everything? Why would it say God saw that Leah was hated? Of course he saw that Leah was hated. Well, sometimes, especially the Old Testament, but all of the Bible will talk like that as a way of saying the Lord decided it was time to act, right? The Lord acted toward this. Uh, You might think of Hannah who prayed for a child for a long time, and then eventually the Lord remembered Hannah and she conceived, right? He had never forgotten about Hannah. He just decided it was time to act. Or the people of Israel groaning out under the yoke of slavery, and they groaned for 400 years. And then, finally, it says, the Lord heard their cries, and God saw, and God knew. Now, he had always heard, and he had always seen, and he had always known, but that's a signal that he is looking down with his special eye of favor upon them and is ready now to bless them. So the Lord is looking down, seeing all things, and especially focused on Leah and her hardship in this moment. And so, he blesses her. He blesses her richly. He opens her womb and gives to her four sons in what at least sounds like very quick succession, while her sister's womb, Rachel's womb, remains closed. She remains barren. As if to be a deliberate showing that my favor is on this one. My favor is on the unloved one. So now Leah will walk around and she will have four sons with her. Now people will treat her with a higher esteem in the world. And she has four sons to delight in and to enjoy and to watch grow up and see if they bear any grandchildren. So her life every day has just gotten a whole lot better because of these boys that were born. But there's something even more deep that's going on here. The last son, you might notice, his name is Judah. And some of you know the significance of Judah and what will become of Judah. Judah is the tribe from which Jesus Christ comes. And so that means the Lord has chosen Leah to be an ancestor of Jesus himself. He didn't choose the pretty sister for that. He chose the unloved sister for that. 
That means that in heaven right now and for all of eternity, that even as Leah bows before Jesus Christ and calls him Lord, he is calling her mother and ma'am. I wonder if any of us in this room will be elevated that highly in heaven. And yet there she is, elevated so highly as an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. The Lord has taken her from a lowly and despised state and has now forever put her high and mighty in heaven. Now, the Lord does that because it's what he does, and the Spirit had it recorded here in this very fashion in order to show us something of God's character, because this is not something that God did once. It is something that he does over and over again in Scripture, and in fact, it is even who he is. So we have in that story just a little peek into God's heart that we can marvel at together and say what a good and holy God that we have. Going about life is sort of like living on the other side of the curtain between us and God's glory. We have, we've sinned greatly against God and we go about this world unable to see God. Scripture says no one has ever seen God. He's made known in Jesus, but we've never seen him. And so you could think of life as standing on one side of a curtain. And here are two thick velvet stage curtains. And on the other side of that curtain is the blazing glory of God's very heart but we can't see it. It's covered up by the curtains. And what a story like this does is just take those two curtains and split them apart just an inch so that the the blazing glory of the beauty of God's heart can shine forth and we can marvel at, wow, that God that we barely know and we barely understand, he is glorious and he is wonderful. And so what I want to do this morning is just stick my hands in that crack in the curtain and use all the strength I have to pry it open a couple more inches so that we can look through it and see how beautiful the heart of Jesus Christ is, especially toward those of us who are unloved and rejected in the world today. So this is then... This favor he had for Leah is not just a thing he did, right? It's something he does, and even who he is. It is even his very character. This is not even the first time in the Bible we see it. This is only the 29th chapter in the Bible, and yet we've already seen him do this at least once. There was a woman named Hagar who was despised and rejected, mistreated by Sarah, enslaved, and then made a second slave wife to bear children, just lived this, this awful experience. She's eventually out in the middle of the desert, she and her son about to die, and the Lord looks down upon her and shows her favor. And she says, you are a God of seeing. You have seen me. The Lord lifts her up and makes her mighty, gives her a son named Ishmael, who today all of the Arabic peoples trace their lineage back to. We have good reason to believe that they're right even to do that. Makes her a great and mighty woman in the ancient East. The Lord loves the unlovely, and so he loved unloved Hagar. Then we have this story with Leah, and the Lord shows great favor to her. In the next generation, it would be Rachel's son, Joseph, who is the despised one. 
his brothers band together and it says that they hated him. They despised him. They hated him so much that they sold him into slavery. And he was brought then to Egypt and made a slave in Egypt. Then his master's wife falsely accused him of rape. And so his master became enraged at him and hated him and threw him into prison. So here is Joseph in an Egyptian prison, twice hated by both his brothers and then his master. And the Lord takes him and lifts him up to make him second in command in all of Egypt. Then his brothers come in a famine and bow down before him. The Lord loves the unloved, and so he loved unloved Joseph. Then all of Jacob's descendants would stay in Egypt They would dwell there for a while for the famine, and then a new Pharaoh would rise up, one that doesn't know Joseph. And the Psalms say that the the hearts of the Egyptian people turned to despise Israel. So now it's all the nation of Israel that's hated and despised. The Egyptians enslave them. 400 years this goes on until finally their cries come up to the Lord and the despised, hated Israelites are rescued by God's mighty hand, taken through the Red Sea, brought into their promised land and given a mighty nation and a mighty land. The Lord loves the unloved and so he loved unloved, despised, rejected Israel. He would write their laws for them. And in their law, even though it was a little redundant to do so, he would actually write laws that protect women like Leah. Now, Genesis 2 already made it really clear, one man and one wife, right? You don't do the one man and two wives thing. So they already knew not to do this. And yet there were laws in ancient Israel that said things like, you must not marry the sister of your first wife and take her as a rival wife to your wife. Or you could just say, Don't do what Jacob did to Leah, right? One specific law written to make sure that never happens again. Or in another place, it says if a man should wind up with two wives and he loves one and he doesn't love the other, he may not show favoritism to the sons of the wife that he loves. Now he must give everybody their due. So he'd already told them not to do the polygamy thing in the first place. Now he's writing even redundant laws to make sure people in this situation are protected and safe. Why does he do that? Because the Lord loves the unloved wife. He loves unloved women because the Lord loves the unloved. Years later, it would come time to raise up a king. And so they would install Saul as the first king. He did not work out well. He didn't do well. And so it's time to appoint a new dynasty, not one of Saul's sons. So the prophet Samuel is led by the Lord out to the house of a man named Jesse. And he says, Jesse, gather all of your sons. One of them I'm going to anoint as king. And so Jesse gathers his sons, puts them all in front of Samuel. And Samuel looks at them and he says, it's, it's, not, it's not one of these. What's going on? Jesse, are these, are these all your sons? Yeah? Jesse, are you sure these are all your sons? And Jesse says, well, I mean, there's David, but he's out in the sheep field. Does he even count? And Samuel says, well, we're not sitting down until he gets here because the Lord has chosen him to be king over all of Israel. The Lord loved, unloved, and rejected David. David would then have a daughter named Tamar, and she was very beautiful. 
And her brother, Amon, desired her very greatly. And in one of the more grotesque acts in the Bible, uh, Tamar's brother rapes her. And then, after he's done, decides that now he hates her. It's hard to think of of a more cruel thing to do to a woman. And then David hears of this, and he's very angry, but he doesn't act. And so the king isn't going to do anything about it and isn't going to protect her. But two years later, the Lord arranged a scenario in which Amon meets a swift and very violent death. The Lord avenged her. Why does he do that? Because the Lord loved, unloved, and abused Tamar. David would write many psalms and he would say, Lord, they hate me without cause, but I put my trust in you because he knew that even though he was despised and rejected and hated, he could trust in the God who loves the unloved. And his son Solomon would write Proverbs. And in the Proverbs, he would say things like, all a poor man's brothers hate him, right? He would note that when someone is poor and doesn't have much, even their brothers don't like them. They're just like, oh, you know, that they're rejected, they're despised. And in those same Proverbs, Solomon would write of the Lord's love for the poor. He'd say, the one that's generous to the poor is is basically lending to God, and God will repay them. So, So the poor man, who is despised by even his own brothers, the Lord loves, because he loves the unloved. And then years later, David's hometown of Bethlehem would become smaller and smaller and less and less significant. It would become kind of that rural area that nobody thinks about or cares about and kind of look down on them because they're backwards out there. And the prophet Micah would rise up and say, Oh Bethlehem, too little even to be among the clans of Judah. From you will come forth for me a mighty ruler whose coming is of old. And what he means is, My son, Jesus, I'm going to raise up out of that little insignificant town that everyone else despises. The Lord loves even the unloved town and the unloved city. So the favor he showed to Leah here isn't just something he did once, right? It is just something that he does. And it is even who he is. The Lord loves the unloved. That's who he is. This is so much a part of who he is that the prophet Isaiah would tell of the day when God will become man and walk on the earth. The days of Jesus Christ walking on the earth. And the way he would describe Jesus when he came to earth, he would say he's he's like a root coming out of the dry ground. You ever tried to grow a plant out of dry ground? At best, you're going to get a scraggly-looking plant out of dry ground. And this one even has a root showing, so it's not doing great. You look at that plant and you say, ah, that one didn't turn out right, right? That was, he says, the physical appearance of Jesus on the earth. He said, and then he goes on to say he had no form or majesty that we'd look at him No beauty that everybody would be like, oh, look at that handsome, charismatic leader. Let's go and follow him. He would have none of this. He would come to earth and live the life of the one who was despised and rejected because he didn't have the looks to win over the crowd. He would be born as well to poor parents who could only afford pigeons when it came time to 
dedicate him. You could get two sparrows for a penny back then. I bet pigeons, they probably paid you to take pigeons back then. I don't really know what they cost, but that poor they were though, a poor and kind of helpless family. And this is how the Lord would choose to come. Now, God could come to earth as the son of Caesar if he wanted to, but he chooses to come the son of poor parents born in a stall and put in a manger and then live his whole life with no form or majesty that he would look, that we would look upon him. Now that means something very good for the unloved in this world. Now, if you're, if you're a Leah, if you're the kind of person this story is about, this means the Lord loves you now in two ways that are special just to you and people like you. First one we've been talking about the whole time, it's just in his character and it's in his heart to love people like you. But now over and above that, Jesus looks to you and loves you with the love of someone who says, I know just what that is like. I wonder if if most of us in this room are old enough that we used to be something, right? I used to be a food server. I used to be a waiter. Some of you, when you were little girls, used to be a dancer, or maybe you were a pizza delivery driver for for a while. I wonder what you used to be. Whatever you used to be, I bet when you meet people like that, you probably have a special endearment to them. Me, I'm way too patient with food servers when the food takes too long, right? Like my kids get crumpy and it's been 45 minutes and where's the food and you know dad's got to stand up and say hey is the food coming and try to kind of negotiate that and I'm the guy that's like nah it's it's only been an hour and five minutes like let's give them a little bit more time Uh, why am I like that well because I know what it's like to be looking at a 55 minute ticket time and have a table over there whose glass is empty and you maybe should go fill it but if you do they're probably going to yell at you because the food's taking too I know just what that is like and so I've got a special love for people like that ladies when you were a little girl if you were a dancer and you did the whole dance shoes and the tutu and all of that I wonder if you see a little girl running across the parking lot with her little dance shoes in her hands and the tutu and everything on I wonder if your heart just goes oh right you have like a special love for somebody like that because you used to be just like that. Or maybe you were a pizza delivery driver and now you tip the pizza delivery guy a whole lot because you know what that used to be like, right? Whatever you used to be, you probably have a love for people like that. Well, the Lord looks now upon the rejected in the world, those who aren't attractive enough to get ahead. And he says, yeah, I know just what that's like. Yeah, I know what it's like for, for my friends to desert me. And so he's got a special love for you. He says, I know what it's like to be not attractive enough that the crowd wants to come and look at me, right? He says, I know what that's like. He says, I know what it is like to be, to be stripped down naked and beaten mercilessly and even hung up on a cross in front of the whole world so that they could jeer and sneer at me. He looks upon the rejected and despised and says, I know exactly what you're going through. And so this is even a second type of special love that he has just for you and just for people like you if you live in the world the way that Leah lived in the world. That means something then for the wife who knows that her husband doesn't like her and the husband who knows that his wife doesn't really like him. Or for the child who knows, yeah, the reason dad hasn't called in 30 years is because he's been disappointed 
for 30 years. It means something for those who should be loved by someone in this life but are not. It means that the Lord looks upon you and says, my heart loves you. And I know just what it is you're going through. It means even that the more that that other person's heart drifts farther and farther away from you, the more that the Lord's heart comes closer and closer to you and reaches to you and says, you are mine. This is the glory and the beauty of our wonderful God that we worship. And it's even part of why he chose to come and save us in the first place. Because in some ways, there are some of us who live like this and some of us who don't. But in another way, all of us were that unloved and unlovely person, right? All of us had rebelled and sinned against God so greatly that Isaiah says it was like it just polluted all of us. And and that our righteousness, like our deeds before God, because we have done so much evil, our deeds before him are like the pile of the dirty laundry of a kid who had a stomach bug, like all the puke and everything in there. And you look at that and smell it and, right? Okay, there is our righteousness before God. Just turn your head away and plug your nose because you don't want nothing to do with that. Now, why would God then turn himself toward that world and those people and say, I will send my son to them to die for them and bring them back to me? Why would God do that? Because he loves the unlovely and the unloved. So this very part of God's heart that is revealed in this story for Leah, we have that in part to thank for our salvation. Why would God be so moved to reach down to us and save us when we were that disgusting before him? Well, because, as it says, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Because, as it says, that that he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were that dirty pile of laundry, Christ died for us. Why does he do that? Because he loves the unloved and he loves the unlovely. That is so true that the Lord today tends to choose the lowest people in the world to come into his kingdom so often. Uh, This is made really clear in the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, in which Paul writes to them, and he's writing to Corinth, which would be kind of like writing to, I don't know, Nashville or New York City today, like that place where everybody wants to be, and if you own property there, you're cool, right? So he's writing to them, and he says to them, now guys, think about your calling, meaning like think about the moment when you came to Christ and what you were before God called you. He says, not many of you were wise in the world, were you? And not many of you were wealthy and well-off, and not many of you were favored. In fact, he's basically saying, you you guys were like the rejects of Corinth before God called you, right? But, he says, God chose the weak to shame the strong, and he chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the poor to shame the rich. He chose the things that are not to shame the things that are. 
This is what God does today. He pulls us into his kingdom one by one. And most of us, if we look around, we would say the same thing. Yeah, I wasn't really anybody when God called me. Why did he choose us and people like us? That's what he does. That's who he is. He loves the unlovely. And so you have that to thank for the fact that he brought you and I into the kingdom. And we have that to thank that he came down to the world to save us anyway. That is a good God, isn't it? That's a God worth, worth glorying in, a God worth celebrating. That's a God that if he calls you to do hard things, it is, it is worth it. It's always a good deal, even if what he calls from you is difficult. Why? Because you're getting him in return. And if we can just see now how good he is, we can see that's always a good deal, no matter what it is that he's calling you to give up. Uh, there are people who come to Jesus, and the first thing he calls from them is to be baptized, right? And for so many, it's like, ooh, that sounds kind of scary. Trust somebody else to dunk me in water and pull me back up? That doesn't sound like a good time to me. And so a lot of us are afraid to take this first step of faith in Jesus by being baptized. There's two really important things we got to know there. One, that's probably not going to be the scariest thing that he ever calls you to do. Often following Jesus calls for some scary things. But two, and more importantly, he is more than worth it. He's worth doing scary things for. He's worth trusting with all we have. Differently, there are some who know there is something they're going to need to give up to come to Jesus. You might think of, of, a, of a woman who's in a same-sex relationship, and she knows, if I come to Jesus, I have to give her up. Right? And she might look to God and say, God, she is the only good thing I have in my life. Why are you calling me to give her up? And the Lord looks down and he says, if you can see through this glimpse how good I am, you'll know I'm worth it. And Jesus is always worth it. Why is he always worth it? Because he's this good. He is this beautiful. Yeah. There are some of us who would come to Jesus, except we're saying, how could he ever love me? Right. How would he ever receive me if I came to him? Maybe you have a, an exaggerated view of your own worthlessness, or maybe you have a good view of your own sin before God, and you know what you've done. Whether you've got yourself pegged right or not, I want to say this, if that's you. If you're looking to God and say, I would come, but I know he would never receive me. What I want to say is that if that's what's holding you back, Friend, you lack faith in Christ. Because whether or not he receives you is not about you. It's about him and how good he is. And we just got a glimpse into how good he is. How good is he? He loves the unloved and he loves the unlovely. And so if you're 
own view of yourself is keeping you from coming to Jesus, what you have to do is stop looking at yourself because he, he doesn't receive people based on how good they are. He receives people based on how good he is. And so you must trust him, his goodness, his love for the unlovely and his blood that was spilled for sinners like me and sinners like you. This is what it means to trust in Jesus and not to trust in self-righteousness. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. And whether you're that person that that's holding you back or something else holding you back, my call to you is come to this Jesus and, and trust in him. So, so there's our look into God's heart. Leah's response in the following verses helps us kind of understand the struggle of people like this. And, and if you're like this, it might help you understand your life, might give you some practical help too. So I just want to close this morning then by, by looking at her response And maybe you can ask, how much is this like what what I go through? As we kind of continue on in the story, in verse 32, she has her first son, and she calls his name Reuben. Uh, Reuben means, see a son. Is that a taunt to Rachel? See, I have a son? Or is that the Lord sees me and gave me a son? We don't know, but it means see a son. We do have some idea, though, because she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So there's two things going on in her heart there. One, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. She sees, she acknowledges, God in heaven has given me favor because of my affliction. So she sees what God is doing. She gets that. She finds comfort and solace there. Also, though, she is still holding out hope that one day she may win Jacob's love. Right. Now, now my husband will love me, she says. How similar is this to the husband who says, okay, now that I got that promotion, now my wife will be proud of me. Right. Or the son who says, now that I have landed that job, now dad will finally love me and be proud of me. Or the, the employee that says, now that I landed that big client, now the boss will be happy with me and stop blowing up a fuse every time that anything goes wrong. Right? There's this hope that maybe eventually I can earn their love and she is holding on to that. And the story goes on. In verse 33, she conceives again, bears another son. And we learn how it goes for her. Does Jacob love her now that she has borne a son? Well, here's what she says. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. So, no, it does not work. Jacob still does not give his love to her. And she sees this. She calls his name Simeon, which means the Lord hears Acknowledging again that it is God who gave her this child. In verse 34, she conceives again, she bears another son, and she's still got that hope. I think this is one of the most tragic sentences in the whole thing. She says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. She is not giving up. She wants to earn Jacob's love, and he's just not giving it. Yet she has that hope, now this time. And so she calls this third son's name Levi, which means attached and joined. And then finally, she bears the fourth son. And she says the words this time again, but it's the opposite. Now remember, in the third one, we might not have noticed this, she doesn't acknowledge God's work in it at all. She just says, this time my husband's going to love me, and leaves it at that, gives no praise to God. This fourth time is the opposite. 
she does not mention this time any longing or desire that Jacob might love her. This time, she just says, I'll praise the Lord this time. Do you feel the the closure at the end here? No longer is she pining for Jacob's love. Now she can just say, this time I'll praise God. Almost all of us have half of the good in life, right? One has a great job and no spouse. And another has a great loving marriage, but God gave them no children. And the other one has many children, but never really got the good job that they wanted. And it kind of seems like nobody really gets it all, right? Nobody gets the awesome kids, the awesome marriage, the awesome spouse, the awesome job, the awesome church, the awesome car, and the awesome everything, right? And so here Leah arrives at this point where she says, I don't have everything I want, but I've got some good things, and I have the favor of God in heaven. And so this time, this time, I'll praise the Lord. Those of you that live in that that constant unloved relationship, some of you spent your whole lives vying for your father, your mother's love, or your spouse's love, or somebody in your life been been the rejected brother or sister and longed for that. I wonder if you can relate to that. Well, maybe, maybe this time they'll like me. Maybe, maybe now they'll like Maybe now they will like me. And the words I want to put before you that I hope you will just latch onto as your own are those last words of Leah there. This time, I'll praise the Lord. You have the favor of God in heaven. And that doesn't make the pain of rejection go away. It does give you comfort in the pain of rejection. And it does give you something so much better. And so let that be your peace. Let that be your solace. Let even today be the day that you say, okay, this time I'll praise the Lord and I will find my happiness in him. This is a good God, isn't it? Man, so good. And so, so worthy of us treasuring him. So whatever it is God's calling of you, church, Christian, I want you to know he's worth it. And if you're not a believer today, but you hear the Lord's voice calling you, I want you to know he's worth it. I hope you saw today how good he is. And if you're the sort of person that this story is about, I hope you'll latch on to those final words. This time, I will praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Let's get some help with that.